Part 1, An Ambitious Proposal This story begins in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1847. Frederick Douglass is standing in the dingy, smoky, industrial part of town near the railroad station. He's standing outside of what seems to be a large wooden shack. Now, Frederick Douglass at this point is 29 years old. He's just returned from a tour of England and Ireland. He was promoting his book, which had already sold over 5,000 copies. And he was lecturing on the institution of slavery in America. Since his return, he had just started publishing the North Star Abolitionist newspaper. So by 1847, 29-year-old Frederick Douglass was the darling of the abolitionist movement. And he found himself standing outside of this shack because he was answering an invitation from a prominent merchant and an outspoken abolitionist called John Brown. You can imagine Douglas's surprise to find Brown's home address seemed to be an uninsulated warehouse next to the railroad tracks. Douglas describes Brown's home like this. It was a small wooden building on a back street in a neighborhood chiefly occupied by laboring men and mechanics. Respectable enough, to be sure, but not quite the place I thought where one would look for the residence of a flourishing and successful merchant. But to Douglas's surprise, John Brown opens the door. Now, at this point, Brown was 47 years old. But John Brown was one of those guys who always looked way older than he actually was, even by 19th century standards. So at 47, he looked like he was flirting with 60. His body was just skin bone and that wiry kind of muscle that you see on older people who have worked very hard their entire lives for not nearly enough money. And John Brown also had this kind of destitute hunger in his face. Like he looked hungry, which also made him look a little bit dangerous. Then upon entering Brown's home, Frederick Douglass describes the interior of his house like this. Plain as the outside of the house was, the inside was plainer. Its furniture would have satisfied a Spartan. It would take longer to tell what was not in the house than what was in it. There was an air of plainness about it which almost suggested destitution. The dinner they shared that night was beef soup with cabbage and potatoes. Or as Douglas put it, a meal such as a man might relish after following the plow all day. After dinner, Brown dismisses his family. And as soon as everyone has left, Brown gets up from the table and goes to the cupboard. And he pulls out a large map of the United States. This map would have contained 29 U.S. states. The disputed territories in the Southwest, as this was the middle of the Mexican-American War, 
and this vast wasteland stretching from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean, and it was all marked unorganized territory. But Brown, he's going to take his bony finger and drop it right down on the Appalachian Mountains in New York. And then he's going to slide his finger down the Appalachians to Western Virginia. These mountains, said Brown, are the basis of my plan. God has given us the strength of the hills to freedom. They were placed here for the emancipation of the Negro race. They are full of natural forts, where one man for defense will equal a hundred for attack. They are full also of good hiding places where large numbers of brave men can be concealed and baffle and elude pursuit for a long time. I know these mountains well, and could take a body of men into them and keep them there despite all the efforts of Virginia to dislodge them. The true object to be sought is first of all to destroy the money value of slave property. And that can only be done by rendering such property insecure. Brown then will pull out all of his notebooks and share with Frederick Douglass all of the minor details of his plan. First, he would train a small group of 20 to 25 young men, and they would go and raid uh, an armory somewhere in Northern Virginia. From that armory, they will collect more guns and ammunition, funnel those guns into the hills of the Appalachians, and uh, that would become their base of operation. From those hills, they will conduct a series of attacks on all of the plantations in Virginia. With every group of slaves that they free, they will funnel them north through the Underground Railroad, and the able-bodied young men would stay in the hills and train and be recruited into John Brown's army. And as this army grew, so will the size of the attacks on southern slave owners. And he would continue this war until the South had no choice but to completely eradicate the institution of slavery. This was John Brown's plan. Douglas vehemently disagreed with this plan. He thought, just like most of Brown's peers, this was a bad idea. Douglas, at this time, still believed that slavery could be eradicated through the ballot box. But John Brown, throughout his entire life, will always insist that slavery will only be eradicated through the shedding of blood. Though the two men really couldn't agree that night, uh, Frederick Douglass leaves Brown's home with a very strong impression of John Brown. Later on, Douglas writes, Whenever he spoke, his words commanded earnest attention. His arguments, which I ventured at some points to oppose, seemed to convince all. His appeals touched all, and his will impressed all. Certainly, I never felt myself in the presence of a stronger religious influence than while in this man's house. Before leaving, Brown apologizes to Douglas for the 
sparsity of his home, saying that he lives as humbly and as modestly as possible in order to save money for his cause. Of course, Douglas was a very gracious man. He really didn't mind. And he leaves. And the two gentlemen will exchange letters. But that is the last time Frederick Douglass will ever see John Brown again. 12 years later, John Brown led a group of 19 armed men on an attack of a federal fort at Harpers Ferry, Virginia. After killing a number of guards and civilians, Brown and his company occupied the armory at Harper's Ferry for a number of hours until a company of Marines led by Robert E. Lee could arrive from Baltimore. The Marines put a swift end to the insurrection. Brown and the surviving members of his company were placed under arrest. By this time, Brown had already reached a national level of infamy. The newspapers would have referred to him as Captain Brown or also a Tommy Brown. Just a few months after his arrest, John Brown was hung for treason. The events that unfolded at Harper's Ferry in 1859 shook the nation to its core. Today it's seen as the watershed moment, the spark which ignited the American Civil War. But what we'll see is John Brown's fateful raid on Harper's Ferry was just one battle in Brown's personal war against slavery. And now for a word from our sponsors. Today's podcast is sponsored by Pepsin. Now, I know a lot of us are stuck inside right now, snacking on God knows what, and uh, you're going to have some digestive issues, right? And that's why the wonderful people here uh, at Pepsin uh, are really changing things up, right? This is a truly wonderful remedy for indigestion, dyspepsia, jaundice, liver complaint, constipation, debility. How many of you are suffering from debility right now? Well, listen to this, folks. Half a teaspoon of pepsin properly infused in water will digest or dissolve five pounds of roast beef in about two hours of the stomach. Yeah. Pepsin. A miracle drug. Right? By using nature's own method, by nature's own agent, the gastric juice, right? Now, this is so important for your digestive health, uh, this very important word, gastric juice. But, uh, of course, I'm no expert on uh, human digestion. Uh, that's why uh, I want to quote a German scientist, Baron Liebig. Uh, in his celebrated work on animal chemistry. See, what Liebig says is, an artificial digestive fluid equal to the gastric juice may be readily prepared from the mucous membrane of the stomach of the calf, in which various articles of food as meat and eggs will be softened, changed, and digested, just in the same manner as they would in the human stomach. Wow, there you go, folks. Dr. Hutton's pepsin is sold by nearly all the dealers of fine drugs and popular medicines throughout the United States. Uh, it is prepared in a power, powder and a fluid form for the low, low price of $1 per bottle. Pepsin. Don't put your stomach through abuse. Instead, fill it 
with gastric juice. (laughs) I came up with that one myself. Part two. John Brown plays the markets and loses. So remember how Frederick Douglass was struck by um, the religious presence in his home, and that really was the thing that impressed most people about John Brown was his intense devotion to his Protestant faith. And that's why he really believed that he himself was the hand of God put on the earth to serve one purpose, to end slavery once and for all, or to die trying. On the other hand, while Brown's faith was real and sincere, it also served as a very effective cover, right? Because the sparsity of his lifestyle, this Spartan setup uh, in his house, it had less to do with him saving money for the cause. It had less to do with his modest Protestant lifestyle, and it had more to do with the fact that John Brown was bankrupt, and John Brown spent his entire life accumulating debt and never paying it off. Uh, Throughout Brown's life, he will work in a ton of different industries. Uh, He worked as a leather tanner, a land surveyor, a lumber dealer, postmaster, wool grower, breeder and trainer of racehorses, a stock fancier, who knows what that means, uh, a land speculator, farmer, orchardist, wool factor, wool sorter, and a pioneer. And the one thing that all of these business ventures had in common is that every single one of them would inevitably fail. Because as magnetic as he was, as passionate Uh, And as faithful as he was, he was a terrible businessman. And that's what we're going to talk about in this story here. See, there's this pattern in John Brown's life where he starts from scratch in a new place, uh, takes out a huge loan from an abolitionist sympathizer, uh, and he will try to start a new business. And when that business fails, he packs up and leaves town and leaves his creditor high and dry. This happened in 1839 when uh, John Brown had taken out a loan of $2,800 from the New England Company. Uh, He invests it in his upstart wool business. Uh, The business fails, and so he leaves town. And then three years later, in 1842, Brown is actually arrested and thrown in jail, and he's forced to declare bankruptcy. And so now he has the New England Company expecting to receive payments from this man from time to time. And this is what happens all over the country. Somehow, after his arrest and bankruptcy in 1842, four years later, in 1846... Brown finds his next victim, a man named Colonel Simon Perkins, and they agreed to go into business together. They create a firm, the Perkins and Brown Wool Company. The model was pretty simple. Uh, Perkins would provide the financial backing, uh, and Brown would provide his expertise in the wool trade. They would buy high-quality Ohio wool and try to sell it in the New England market. And that's how Brown ends up in Springfield, Massachusetts in 1847. That wooden shack where Frederick Douglass had met John Brown for dinner, 
That was the warehouse that was rented by Simon Perkins to store and sort the wool from Ohio before it was sold in Massachusetts. And John Brown was living in that warehouse because he could not afford to rent a home for him and his family. John Brown's life was the very definition of robbing Peter to pay Paul. So three years into the Perkins and Brown venture, things, of course, were not going well. The previous year had left the company nearly $8,000 in the red, so if that year's stock didn't make a profit, the company was going to go bankrupt. So, in 1849, Brown has his last clip of fine Ohio wool, and uh, one day it was inspected by a Yorkshire man living in New England. His name was Mr. Musgrave, and Mr. Musgrave owned a uh, Northampton woolen mill which made fine clothing. Uh, Mr. Musgrave actually really admired the quality of Brown's clip and offered the generous price of 60 cents per pound. And that's more than enough for the company to actually have made a profit for the year, to move them into the black for 1850. But Brown refused the offer. Instead, he cooked up this crazy scheme where he believed he could sell his Ohio wool in London for twice that price. Remember, this is 1849, the year of the California gold rush. This is when the American idea that you could become insanely rich overnight with one big score uh, starting to become very popular. Now, John Brown, weirdly enough, never becomes a gold prospector. However, he still thought he could make it big by finding a new market for his Ohio wool in London. See, John Brown is kind of like Adam Sandler in Uncut Gems. He was looking for that one big score that was going to overnight pay off all of his debts. So on Simon Perkins's dime, John Brown will load his last clip of wool onto a brand new wooden steamship and sail east towards Great Britain, a country with more sheep than people. Now, uh, Brown is going to arrive in London in good health, full of optimism, in August of 1849. But his optimism is very quickly dashed. And you can see this uh, from his first letter to his oldest son, John Brown Jr., not long after he arrived. Dear son John, I have nothing new to write except that I am still well and that on Monday a lot of number two wool was sold at the auction sale at from 26 to 29 cents per pound. This is a bad sale. It really was. That was less than half of what he was offered for the wool in Massachusetts. And very quickly, Brown's going to realize that uh, he's really not going to find a better price. Uh, he will end up selling his entire clip uh, in the UK, uh, but never is paid more than 30 cents per pound of the wool, which means the Perkins and Brown company is doomed. And now Simon Perkins is going to be added to the growing list 
of creditors and business partners who continue chasing John Brown all over the country uh, to get their money back. But Brown doesn't immediately return to the States uh, with his tail between his legs. Right? Instead, he spends the better part of a month traveling around Europe. Uh, this was for two reasons. One was just to raise support and awareness for his cause of freeing the slaves, but also to study the battlefields and the tactics of the Napoleonic Wars. Because never forget, everything John Brown does is in an effort to achieve that goal of going to war and freeing the slaves. Right? And with every year, he's going to move closer and closer to his final execution of that goal. But finally, uh, in October of 1849, uh, Brown is going to return home from Europe, now much poorer and much further in debt than he was when he left. By John Brown's 50th birthday, he will have accumulated a personal debt of 40,000 US dollars. In today's money, that equals something around $1.2 million in debt. So I definitely start to see a man who is very quickly running out of things to lose. And once again, John Brown needs to skip town and find another place. So as he's making his preparations to leave Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, one day he actually bumps into that Yorkshire man, Mr. Musgrave. Uh, and Musgrave gets really excited when he sees John Brown. And he says, Brown, I have something to show you. So Brown follows Musgrave to the warehouse. And Musgrave then shows him the wool house is filled with fine, high-quality Ohio wool. The exact Ohio wool he had tried to buy from Brown just a few months earlier. Musgrave had actually gotten a better price of only 57 cents on the pound by purchasing it from an English merchant who had bought it from Brown for 26 cents on the pound. But that's it for uh, the first episode. Stay tuned. We'll see when we can get the next one out. What's going to happen? John Brown needs to skip town. Where's he going to go? Well, that's what we're going to find out maybe in a few days, maybe next week. Who knows? Uh, but uh, while you're looking for things to do right now, I think it's cool to know that uh, all of the information uh, for this story actually comes from the public domain. Uh, for both stories today uh, came out of the book The Life and Letters of John Brown by a man named Franklin Benjamin Sanborn. Uh, and again, that book is available on the public domain. Uh, also, too, the uh, ad uh, came from the Library of Congress's uh, Chronicling America series. Uh, and again, if you are looking for things to fill all of your time that you suddenly have, that series uh, through the Library of Congress website uh, has hundreds of thousands of newspaper articles. Right? All you have to do is type in the year and keywords of what you're searching for, and you can actually read 
what people were talking about uh, as that history was unfolding. And finally, too, uh, available on the public domain and on LibriVox for free, the audiobook, is uh, the narrative biography of Frederick Douglass, something I highly recommend reading. It's incredibly touching, uh, and we take for granted how moving Frederick Douglass's story actually was. Right, so that's really uh, <laughs> uh, free things on the public domain are the real sponsors for today's show. Uh, thanks for listening. You'll hear from me soon.